turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We come this morning to the 20th sermon in the letter of James and the final sermon. And these verses, verses 12 through 20, comprise the conclusion to this letter which James has written to the 12 tribes of the diaspora in the ancient world. So we find in these verses then James's concluding thoughts which not only wrap up the verses which just preceded but effectively bring to a close the entire letter. I'd like to begin with a question. What happens when you become a Christian? The Bible describes a series of wonderful changes that take place in someone who believes for the first time or discovers for the first time that Jesus died for your sins. First of all, you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, which is a way of describing the Lord creating a new and special relationship between you and God through the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means you belong to God in a new and special way. And God belongs to you. You're allied with him, particularly in a world which is hostile towards God. You become a friend of God and a participant in the new world that he is making. But something else happens alongside these inside changes to a new Christian believer. Not only do you experience personal transformation, but you also gain membership or you gain a part in a community called the church. Now the word for church in the Bible is variously used. One of the important ones is ecclesia which means those who are called out. So becoming a Christian effectively generates or creates a new identity. I no longer identify with the negative world which is hostile to God. I now identify with the new world that is being renewed by God as God's friends and partners in creation. So church can't simply mean a building. In fact, the early church had no buildings They met in homes and in fields in various places as a minority community, often a persecuted community, but a community of support, encouragement, and love. That's what it means to be a Christian. An example of some of the practices or habits or devotions of the early church may be found in Acts chapter 2, I think I have a Bible verse here. Do we have that, Scott? There we go. This describes some of the things that the early Christians devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They devoted themselves. I'm calling these four devotions of the early church, and they're worthy of special consideration all on their own. I'm not going to be preaching on Acts chapter 2 this morning. But one of the devotions in particular I want to highlight, and that's that the early Christians devoted themselves to the fellowship. 
Fellowship communicates this idea of a community of encouragement, support, and prayer. Fellowship suggests sharing. And later on in that passage, the sharing included physical things, physical needs. Some had lack, some were, were not well-to-do, some were poor in the, in the church, as is the case today. And so those who were well-supplied with many of God's material blessings took out of those blessings and shared with those who had less. But fellowship or sharing also includes the spiritual and emotional level as well. When you share your joys and, and sorrows with someone, when you talk about what's burdening you, talk about it with another human being, it becomes easier somehow. So fellowship is an important devotion in the church because it's easier to cope with the difficulties of life, with life's sadnesses, or with life's deprivations when you know that you're not the only one. And you know that there's other people that are walking with you and, and sharing the weight and the challenge with you of your hardships. In fact, I would contend that many of the ills in our society today are because we lack fellowship fellowship with our fellows, that mutual participation in one another's lives. And it isn't that we just go without when we go without Christian fellowship, by the way. I'll point this out later in my message, but when people forego the created, designed, divinely provided fellowship of God's people, which is the church, not a building, not a surface, but a community of faith, when you forego that Oh, you don't go without fellowship. You just feel that need in other ways and convince yourself that it's an adequate substitute. But you know it's not. You know it's not. For many of us, fellowship, however, is not easy. The physical presence of other Christians in our lives is not always welcome whether we've been harmed by the church or we're just selfish and inward, we might not just even think about other people and the value that they bring into our lives. And the selfishness, I think, is on both sides of the equation. I don't want your help, and I don't want to give you mine. I don't think about your needs, and I don't think about my need to provide for your needs. I look at all the blessings that I have and I assume they're for me and I don't think about you. And I look at all the needs that you have or that I have and I, don't, I just assume it's not your job to help me. It's my job. That's what it means to be an American. You help yourself. Our behaviors actually undermine, as Christians, or weaken the very fellowship that God gave us the Holy Spirit to create. That bears repeating. Your ordinary behaviors in this world weaken rather than strengthen the fellowship which He gave you the Holy Spirit for that purpose. So what we experience together as a church, as an ecclesia, as a community, as a fellowship is not the spirit-fueled life together that God had in mind, but it's something far less than what it should be. So the solution, according to our text this morning, which we'll see, 
is that we are to pursue life together as a church. Now really, the whole book of James is a description of what the church should look like in a fallen world. That's what this book is about. How Christians are to behave in a negative world which is opposed to God. The things that we're to devote ourselves to, the things that we are to avoid, the, the virtues we're to cultivate, the sins we are to, av- to uh, eliminate in our, in our midst. But as James concludes this letter, he concentrates on three areas of fellowship that I'd like to look at. Living your life together with God, living your life together with the faithful people of your church, and pursuing those who go astray from the life of the church. Life together with God, life together with the faithful, and pursuing those who go astray. So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's word from James chapter 5, from 12, or rather we'll, do, we'll begin at verse 13 through verse 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is worth. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave great rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So far, the reading of God's word, let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your holy scriptures. Thank you for this marvelous letter of James and how over the last many weeks we have been instructed and what our lives together should look like as Christians in this church. And as we conclude with a concentrated look at this, we ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth And the thoughts, questions, and reflections on each one of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To begin with then, life together with God. Look at our text in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So we know this is in the context of the church because he says, is anyone among you. So James has in mind a community of people. But among this community, there's the, the expectation that each member of the community, I'll say each one among you, we could paraphrase, whenever each one of you feels it this way or has these circumstances, this is what each one of you should do in order to encourage, cultivate, or grow your life together with God. And the two scenarios that James mentions effectively cover the entire gamut of our lives. Everything from suffering 
to doing good, which is what cheerful means. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone doing good, doing well, experiencing blessing, thriving, and everything in between? Now, the suffering that's mentioned here, verse 13, is an unusual way to describe suffering. It's the same sort of suffering that James mentions in uh, chapter 5, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, James writes, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, the prophets experienced many sorts of hardships. This is suffering, not really so much sickness, although it's included here, but this suffering has to do with misfortune, life's difficulties. So I thought I'd mention just a few of the difficulties or misfortunes that the prophets went through. For example, Jeremiah experienced the misfortune or difficulty of being opposed in his work as a spokesman of God. So as Jeremiah went about his work speaking for God, he found himself opposed and persecuted and marginalized and even made fun of. At one point he was thrown into prison and his very life was in danger except for a last minute pardon, he would have been killed. I think of Ezekiel who suffered the difficulty of going into exile and being estranged from his home country. So he was an alien in a foreign land in a land that didn't speak his language, the people didn't look like him, they didn't act like him, they didn't talk like him, and he was forced to cultivate a relationship with God under these difficult circumstances. One of the Psalms asks, how can I sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land? If you've never been far from home or lived in a foreign country or lived as a resident alien, this may be difficult for you to appreciate. But Ezekiel suffered this very sort of exile. And not only that, he suffered exile with the church or the exiled people who were complaining the entire time rather than receiving it from the hand of the Lord. See, he was forced to be cheerful and hopeful in exile at a time when everyone around him was not. We're looking at the suffering of the prophets and the misfortunes that befell some of them What about Hosea? Prophet Hosea suffered horribly in terms of marital breakdown. And if you know the story of Hosea, it's a story of repeated and um, just graphic, difficult marital struggles. And through all of that, Hosea was called to be faithful through these misfortunes, through these difficulties. And so what James is saying in verse 13 of our passage is, When you're going through misfortune, your life together with God is fueled by prayer. That's what he's saying. When you're going through hard times, James says, is anyone suffering? Did did the business collapse? Is your marriage breaking down? Is your relationship on the rocks? Are you looking for a job? Are you estranged from your parents? Whatever it may be. Pray. Now what does it mean to pray? Well, that could be an entire message on its own, but 
prayer isn't just asking for God for things. Prayer is listening to God for things. Prayer is reading the word of God and finding your place in his story rather than insisting he take his place in yours. Prayer is receiving spiritual strength to manage these unexpected and often catastrophic trials that we go through. See, life's difficulties can tempt you to give up on God. And in such circumstances, we need prayer. But the other is true as well as anyone cheerful, not only on life's misfortunes, but when things are going well. Cheerful is a way that the ESV renders uh, when good things happen to me. So cheerful is how you feel when good things happen to you. And so they say, is any one of you cheerful? Sing praise. Now literally, we're being asked here to sing psalms or to make a psalm. And it's certainly appropriate when good things happen to you that you turn to the book of psalms. And as we sang this morning, you, you sing God's word. This is a, a divinely inspired song book. It's a book of poems. It's a, it's a library of emotions from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. But they're divinely authorized emotions. And so by reading and singing the Psalms in times of sorrow and in times particularly here, in good times, we're guided in, our, in, in a way that we're responding to the events of our lives, particularly the, the blessings of our lives. See, just as life's difficulties can tempt you to assume that God has abandoned you, when things are going good, when you're feeling good, it's tempting to forget that God has provided for you. Think about that. You're being encouraged when it's hard to depend on God. You're being encouraged when it's good to thank God. See, James knows what he's talking about here. Your life together with God is fueled by prayer when it's hard and praise when it's good. One commentator described the life that is being portrayed here as something like a mirror. And when I was first learning, uh, my undergraduate degree was in biology, and I went on to be a science teacher. And before the department got uh, all the new equipment, we had microscopes with mirrors. And you had to angle that mirror under the microscope so that the light would reflect through the specimen up through the lens and hit your eye just correctly so you could see all the little things that were taking place on that slide. So in this illustration, your life is like a mirror. No matter what is hitting that mirror, you're to refocus it upward through the lens of either prayer or praise to the glory of God. That's the call. When a Christian prays, when he or she suffers, or sings praises to God, when he or she experiences blessing, you're acknowledging that God is in charge. He's the great provider. You admit that he has appointed my circumstances. He is the creator. I am not. I am the creature. But it isn't just a profession. It's an engagement. We're talking about life with God. You're, you're leaning in and you're embracing 
his appointments. You're praising him for his provisions and you're praying to him in his deprivations. It's an active dependence. So prayer is an activity. Praise is an activity. It, it issues forth from your body. You don't just sit and complain or ignore. And that's the devotion of an individual's life with God. But keep in mind, we're talking about the church as well. So as anyone among you, the whole congregation should look like each one of you, depending on the Lord, living with God through all the spectrum and all your circumstances. But there's also a, a corporate devotion, a communal devotion that's being described here in verse 14 and following. Listen to the text again. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As I said in my opening remarks, when, a, when someone becomes a Christian, in addition to the beautiful inside changes that God begins to effect, you belong to something that's bigger than you, something that's outside of you. It's called the church, the ecclesia. It's a, a dynamic community of the spirit. It's composed of people throughout the world and down through the centuries. It's not just a building. It's really a movement of individuals who together are seeking to advance the purposes of God in the world. And so when you become a Christian, you join this great movement. You're automatically part of something that we would call the invisible body of Christ. But it's more than that. James makes it clear. It's not just sort of a, a notion. Your participation in the life of God works itself out in the context of a local church. A group of people in a place, perhaps as we have a building, some churches don't. The church is a specific group of people. It has, and we know this because we're told that you are to call for the elders of the ecclesia when you're sick. Now, who would you know to call if you don't have a church? You look up elders in the yellow pages or on, the, on, the, on Google? Who would the elders know that they are to await your call? if there isn't a specific congregation, a specific number of people, a membership, if you will. According to James, the church is to be led by elders who have a responsibility for overseeing, guarding, protecting, and caring for a group of people, some of whom may be sick. This is a little bit like a shepherd has a responsibility to care for guard and protect his sheep.
Sheep are vulnerable and they need protecting, aren't they? They're tasty morsels. So you need a shepherd to beat away the wolves. But sheep are also a little ignorant. And they need to be told where to go and where not to go. So the governing and leading of the elders is, notice what it says, Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. How? That's worth underlining. In the name of the Lord. There's a specific activity here, the anointing of oil, and I'm going to touch on it in a minute. But I want to point out that the work of the elders is the work of the Lord. It's not, these aren't men with God complexes. They are servants of God. They recognize that they are mere men, mere sinners, mere mortals. And what you need most of all is not their help, but the Lord's help. And so a good elder is going to point you to the Lord by his, by his example, right? And by his words. A good elder is going to gospel you by modeling what the life of a Christian looks like and then by explaining that to you when you're sick and when you're cheerful and when you're suffering. So we're talking about being together with the faithful in the local church. And the first point I'm making here is that you need to have a local church. And there needs to be some sort of a commitment. And I've met many people that don't like the word church membership. And I say, well, I'm flexible. What do you want to call it? How about a vow? Now, okay, let's call it a solemn promise where we agree together that we're going to do certain things under certain situations. No, I don't like that either. Hmm. What do you call it? Well, I call it, I don't really want to be committed. I want to kind of float and decide what I want to do and when I want to do it. Well, that doesn't work with James. Committed to the local church. That's what this is about. And so the best thing a parent can do for his child or her child is to model how to choose a church based on this idea that life together with God looks like sharing life together with a local church where there are elders who know me and who I can call when I'm sick. That's how you find a church. Now what about this activity of the sick person calling for the elders? Well, it is interesting that while I think the shepherds of the flock, the the pastors and elders of a church, have a responsibility to know who's sick, in this case... There's also a responsibility for the flock to let the elders know, I'm sick. I don't want to bother the pastor. He's too busy. You have a job. One of your jobs as a member of the church is to let your elders know that you're sick. Now, I think this particular sickness, because of the way it's described, is quite serious. I don't think every single sniffle or cold requires a call to the elders and the anointing of oil. 
But there's an understanding when you make a commitment to the church that that church is committing to be available to you in the event that you become seriously ill, your elders will come around you. And these are men who are righteous and who bring you the gospel in the name of the Lord. That's what they're doing. And part of the righteousness of the elder, by the way, the faith that's required here is all that's required of you as the congregation is I need to call my elders, plural. The persons who have faith for healing in this passage is not the sick person, it's the elders. So if it doesn't work, it's the elders, not the sick person. You follow? So the elders are praying over the sick person. This phrase over could mean that the person is so sick that he or she is lying down and is unable to get up, and so they're over him sort of spatially. But it also may mean that they're praying over him in a sense of they're praying that the Holy Spirit would come over him and that the life of God would come over you when you are sick in that sense, perhaps with the laying on of hands, perhaps not. And this oil which is referred to, this is not, by the way, this, this can't be last rites or extreme unction which the Catholics teach. It can't be that because the expectation is that the person will get better, not that they are about to die. And it's ordinary oil. It's, there's nothing here that says the oil has to be sanctified by the bishop in advance or by some special person. It's anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. So these elders need to be men who actually believe that God can heal disease through prayer. So there's a debate amongst Christians and some Christians say that the spiritual gifts continue, speaking in tongues and other things like this, and other Christians say no. That was a, those were signs that were connected with the inscripturation of the apostolic word, and having received the word, those signs no longer continue. But there is no room for a Christian who doesn't believe that God can heal sickness. No room. Because God does. Now, he doesn't always heal. God is not a vending machine where you drop in the elder praying with oil in the name of the Lord and you hit the button and out pops healing. Every prayer is always included and this is not a weakness, it is a reverence. Thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. If Jesus can pray that, so can we and should we. But we need elders who are men of faith who can believe that God can still reach through and beyond and set aside ordinary means and pray for healing. And I also don't think that praying for healing and anointing with oil obviates or sets aside the possibility that the surgeon or the drug might actually work. Advancement in medical technologies clearly for me and I think for, for most Christians is evidence that God is at work in the world. So God is free to work either with means or without means, but we need elders who believe that God can hear and answer prayers for healing.
But there's another way that we are to strengthen our ties with the church. Life together with the faithful isn't just involving me participating in a specific local church with elders, but it also involves this matter of sin. Now, verse 15 ends with, a, with an unusual phrase, if he, the sick man, has committed sins. I'm not sure what to make of this. I don't, I don't think that James means to say that the sickness itself was caused by sin. We just spent six, seven weeks looking at the book of Job where we learned that sin and sickness aren't always going together, and in Job's case, they didn't go together at all. But I do think that when you are sick, it's a time for soul-searching. It's a time where I find many people are open to asking deep questions. What is God trying to teach me? Is God trying to teach me something? But James moves from that to talking about our life together in the church with one another as ordinary members of the congregation. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I think this healing now is moving, although it's ambiguous, I think it's moving towards the healing of the soul because sin is a sickness that requires confession and prayer in order to be healed. Here I think the church, our church perhaps, certainly our church, the church in general, we struggle with this. We want nothing more than to keep our sins secret, to hide them. We don't want to expose ourselves. But we're called here to hear the confessions of our brothers and sisters. Now I think specifically, if you've sinned against someone, I'll be, I'll be plain, if, if you've sinned against someone in this church, then you are to confess your sins to that person. That's partly what this means. If you suspect someone is upset with you, Matthew 5 tells us, in this church, you would go to that person and say, have I offended you? If so, please forgive me. That's a confession as well. But I also think it can mean this. Brother, I'm struggling and I need to talk to somebody. I need someone to hear my confession. I don't need a priest and I don't need a confessional. I need a brother or sister who will humbly listen in the Spirit of God and pray for me. That's what I need. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as, as it is working. And to illustrate this, James gives us the picture of Elijah who was used by God in a remarkable way in the, in the history of redemption. I don't have time to go into all the ways that Elijah is important in, in the Bible, but he lists two events in 1 Kings 17 and 18 here. He summarizes them in, our, in verse 17 and 18 of our text. But the key phrase is, Elijah had a nature like ours. Elijah was not Superman. Elijah didn't, wasn't sort of a pre-incarnate Christ. Elijah was a son of Adam and a sinner saved by grace, and he prayed, and God listened, and so should you. That's the point here. 
And if God doesn't answer your prayers, it may be that you're hiding sin in your heart and you're refusing to give him glory. It may be that he has something better for you, and so it's no, my son, my daughter, not, not now. There's something better for you. It may be that he's teaching you a lesson about himself or your calling in life, and he's not done teaching that lesson yet. But for all this, even the imperfect prayers, and Elijah, if you read 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah embarrasses himself several times in this story. He's not a great guy. But God hears the imperfect, partial, halting prayers of mortal men and women and is pleased to answer them when we pray in Jesus' name. The final aspect of our life together is not just life individually with God and life with one another in the, in the community. But we have a, some sort of a life with those who go astray. Look at verse 19. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When someone goes astray, when a, when a member of the church goes astray, we have a responsibility to participate in their lives nevertheless the sheep of the flock who wander away, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, are his and therefore our responsibility. Sometimes it's difficult because sometimes the sheep who wander away don't want to talk about it. They want you to leave them alone. So you might have to simply pray for them or, or find creative ways to show your love for them. Sometimes the sheep don't wander away. They change churches for very good reasons. Sometimes reasons you may know and sometimes reasons you might not. But there's a great blessing and a great responsibility that each of us have. It saves a soul from death. It isn't a small thing to turn your back on the Lord. And if you have turned your back on the Lord, you will die. And you will die eternally if you do not repent. And so this is one sheep telling another sheep to come back. This is an appeal. But it's not just the preacher's job to go after lost sheep, although that's a special role of a pastor. You may have been hurt by the church. You may be an introvert. You may think you don't need other people. You may have come up with other concerns with the scriptures that you think this is not the inspired word of God. It's just a bunch of human writings. You may have objections for example, to the way that the church has acted in church history. But I'm appealing to you to come back. And I'm appealing to each one of you who knows a wayward sheep to insert yourself into that person's life. And it may be that you only see them at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And that's awkward when you talk about the Lord at such times, but you need to find a way to do it. Or pick up the phone and call them so you can just... Celebrate at these family times, but they know that you're praying for them. As I conclude, we've been talking about life together, and that's actually the title of one of my favorite books by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor, a Lutheran pastor during World War II, who was martyred for his faith and executed in a concentration camp 
for the way that he tried to live as a Christian under the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer's last words, as far as I'm told, were, this is the end, but for me, it's just the beginning of life. Just before he died, he said, this is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. Of course, Bonhoeffer's right. The moment he breathed his last in this life, he breathed new life in eternity in the presence of the blessed God. But it's also true that God has caused us to be born again by his word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, James 1.18. Life isn't just life that's coming. Life is life that we have now. Jesus came that we would have life and have life abundantly in this life, anticipating the fullness of life which is to come. And that's a life that binds us together as his church. It's that new life, that new creation that we share together that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, the beloved brothers of James's letter. And the world seeks to destroy that. It seeks to steal it. And you yourself are tempted to throw it away and to settle for less. But we must persevere in our troubles and ask God for wisdom and rely on one another through thick and thin, without prejudice, without preference, joining our hearts together, a diverse group of people from all backgrounds and all ethnicities and all experiences, even different theologies, bonded together, bonded together in the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's at work in our church until he returns. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the life that you have given us. And it's a life that is not only together with you, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it even includes those who have gone astray, your elect people who are struggling or stuck in some area of disobedience or unbelief. I pray you would gather in all of your lost sheep and that this church this community would be filled, not just the building, would be filled with the full complement of people that you designed to be part of this specific fellowship and all the churches across South Jersey that hold to the truth and who preach your word. Lord, that we would flourish even as churches together, cooperating as we are able in our shared mission of seeing your kingdom come and your will be done until you return. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.